We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com. Thomas Friedman on a Manifesto for Rescuing America. This talk took place at London's Royal Institution on the 13th of June 2012. Thank you very much. I understand they use this to dissect people. Um, This spot, this is where they sort of looked at, yeah. There'll be none of that tonight. Um, Thank you for having me. It's great to be back uh, with Intelligence Squared. Um, I'm here tonight to talk about uh, my latest book, That Used to Be Us, now out in paperback, and I will be doing a book signing afterwards. Did I mention that I'll be doing a book signing afterwards? (laughs) Um, uh, That Used to Be Us, How America Lost Its Way in the World It Invented and How We Can Come Back. Whenever people hear the title of the book, their first question is usually, but, 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 but does it have a happy ending? And we tell people it does, absolutely. We just don't know yet whether it's fiction or nonfiction. <laughs> We're still working on that, uh, myself and my co-author. Now, as I said, the book is co-authored myself, uh, by myself and uh, my, my friend, uh, Michael Mandelbaum, a chaired professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins University. And um, a lot of people sort of wonder, how did two guys who write about foreign policy, two foreign policy geeks, really, I write a foreign affairs column for the New York Times, Michael is a professor of international relations, how did two foreign policy guys end up writing a book about America, domestic politics? And the answer is very simple. We're old friends, been friends for 20 years. We speak almost every morning. We're neighbors. And um, we started to notice something over the last couple of years. We we would start every day talking about the world, as we always did. But in recent years, we would end every day talking about America. Uh, And it quickly became apparent to us that America, its fate, future, vigor, and vitality, was actually the biggest foreign policy issue in the world. That, you know, our our view basically is, Michael and I, I guess, are sort of a little bit old-fashioned American nationalists. We think America does a lot of stupid things in the world uh, on occasion. But on balance, um, we do believe America is a, 
constructive force in world affairs. And we do believe that if, if America goes weak, um, your kids won't just grow up in a different America. Uh, they will grow up in a fundamentally different world, uh, a world ordered by Russia or by China or by nobody. And therefore, a lot is at stake now in the simple question of whether we can pass on the American dream to our kids. And it's really that that animated the book. Now, Michael and I are both movie buffs, and the book is built around several movie themes. And there's one movie in particular that probably captures our, our deepest concern. It's that 1958 Orson Welles classic, Touch of Evil. I'm sure many of you have seen it. A movie about murder, kidnapping, conspiracy, and corruption in a town on the Mexican-American border. Orson Welles plays a crooked cop who tries to frame his Mexican counterpart for a murder. At one point, Welles stumbles into a brothel and finds the proprietor, Marlene Dietrich, who is also a fortune teller with cards spread out in front of her. Read my future for me, Wells says. You haven't got any, she replies. <laughs> Your future is all used up. Your future is all used up. Is that us? Is that America? Is, is our future all used up? Well, we hope not. We don't think so. But we also believe we got to get our act together, that it is not something we can simply assume is going to take place. And that's really what animated this book. I'm going to just take a minute here to read the opening few paragraphs of the book from the opening chapter, just to give you a flavor of where I'm going. And the opening chapter is called, If You See Something, Say Something. This is a book about America that begins in China. In September 2010, I attended the World Economic Forum's summer conference in Tianjin, China. Five years earlier, getting to Tianjin had involved a three-and-a-half-hour car ride from Beijing to a polluted, crowded Chinese version of Detroit. But things had changed. Now, to get to Tianjin, you head to the Beijing South Railway Station, an ultra-modern flying saucer of a building with glass walls and an oval roof covered with 3,246 solar panels. You buy a ticket from an electronic kiosk offering choices in Chinese and English, and you board a world-class high-speed train that goes right to another roomy modern train station in downtown Tianjin. Said to be the fastest in the world when it began operating in 2008, the Chinese bullet train covers 72 miles, 115 kilometers, in 29 minutes. The conference itself took place at the Tianjin Meijing Convention and Exhibition Center, a massive beautifully appointed structure, the likes of which exists in few American cities. As if the convention center wasn't impressive enough, though, the conference's co-sponsors gave some helpful facts and figures. They noted that the, total, the building contained a total floor area of 230,000 square meters, and that construction of the Beijing Convention Center started on September 15, 2009, and was completed in May 2010. Reading that line, I started walking around my hotel room, September, October, November, December. That's eight and a half months. Returning home to Maryland from that trip, I was describing the Tianjin complex and how quickly it was built to Michael, my co-author, and his wife, Anne. And at one point, Anne interrupted and said, excuse me, Tom, excuse me, have you been to our subway stop lately? 
Now, we all live in Bethesda, Maryland, and often use the Washington Metro Rail subway to get to work in downtown Washington, D.C. I had just been to the Bethesda station and knew exactly what Ann was talking about. The two short escalators there had been under repair for six months. <laughs> While the one being fixed was closed, the other had to be shut off and converted into a two-way staircase. At rush hour, this was creating a huge mess. Everyone trying to get on and off the platform had to squeeze single file up and down one frozen escalator. It sometimes took 10 minutes just to get out of the station. A sign on the closed escalator said that its repairs were part of a massive escalator modernization project. <laughs> what was taking the modernization project so long? We investigated. Kathy Asato, spokeswoman for Washington Metro, said that the repairs were scheduled to take about six months and are on schedule. <laughs> Mechanics needed 10 to 12 weeks to fix each escalator. A simple comparison made a startling point. It took China's TEDx Construction Group 32 weeks to build a world-class convention center from the ground up, including giant escalators in every corner, and it was taking Washington Metro 24 weeks to repair two tiny escalators of 21 steps each. <laughs> we searched a little further and found that on November 14, 2010, the Washington Post ran a letter from, to the editor from one Mark Thompson of Kensington, Maryland, who wrote, as someone who has ridden Metro for more than 30 years, I can think of an easier way to assess the health of the escalators. For decades, they ran silently and efficiently. But over the past few years, when the escalators are running, aging or ill-fitting parts have generated horrific noises that sound to me like a Tyrannosaurus Rex trapped in a tar pit, screeching its dying screams. <laughs> Folks. The quote we found most disturbing, though, came from Maryland Community News. It was a story about the long lines at rush hour caused by the seemingly endless metro repairs. It was a quote from Benjamin Ross, who lives in Bethesda and commutes every day to downtown. My impression, said Ross, standing on line there, is that people have sort of gotten used to it. People have sort of gotten used to it. Indeed, that sense of resignation, that sense that, well, this is just how things are in America today, that sense that America's best days are behind it and China's best days are ahead of it, have become the subject of water cooler, dinner party, grocery line, and classroom conversations all across America today. So do we buy the idea, increasingly popular, that Britain owned the 19th century, America dominated the 20th century, and China will inevitably reign supreme in the 21st century? No. No, we do not. And we have written this book to explain why no American, young or old, should resign himself or herself to that view. The two of us are not pessimists when it comes to America's future. We are optimists, but we are also frustrated. We are too frustrated optimists. <laughs> the title of this opening chapter is, If You See Something, Say Something. You know where that's from. That is the motto of our Department of Homeland Security. It plays over and over on loudspeakers in airports, railway stations, and bus stations across America today. Well, we have seen and heard something, and millions of Americans have too. What we've seen is not a suspicious package left under a stairwell. What we've seen is hiding in plain sight. We've seen something that poses a greater threat to our national security and well-being than anything al-Qaeda does. We've seen a country with enormous potential falling into the worst sort of decline a slow decline, just slow enough for us not to drop everything and pull together to fix what needs fixing. This book is our way of saying something about what is wrong, why things have gone wrong, and what we can and must do to make them right. So that's how the book begins. 
Now, the simple argument uh, of this book is, um, I guess it could be really, you know, reduced to, to a four, four broad themes. And I'll, I'll talk in detail tonight about one, because it's the one I think applies most universally to, to your country here in Great Britain, but to people um, from all over the world. And that's how we respond to what we consider to be the biggest thing happening in the world today, the thing changing and affecting more other things, and that is the merger of globalization and the IT revolution. It's changing education, the workplace, expectations, and that's one of the biggest challenges we face today. Let's set that aside for a minute. We'll come back to it. Second great challenge we face today is debt deficit and entitlement reform. You're familiar with that, how we, how we basically deal with Medicare, Social Security, uh, and all these entitlements that we, we no longer can afford. Um, the third great challenge we have today is energy and climate, uh, how we basically power a future of middle classes in America and around the world without tipping our planet into climate change. And the last of the great challenges is how we get back to, and it really applies to all these others, the great public-private partnership that made our country great. So those are basically the four challenges. Let me talk about the last one and the first one. Our view is that America didn't become an enormously rich and wealthy country by accident. We actually had a formula for success. I know it's against the law in America to say we had an industrial policy, but we actually did have a formula for success. And it was built on five pillars. Uh, the first was educate your people up to and beyond whatever the technology is. So when it was the cotton gin, you wanted to have universal primary education. Uh, when it was the factory, you wanted to have universal secondary education. And now that it is the computer and the knowledge economy, you want universal post-secondary education. Educate your people up to and beyond whatever the technology is so they can get the most out of it. Second uh, thing we had was uh, build the world's best infrastructure, roads, airports, telecom, bandwidth, to enhance commerce and education, transport, and commercial activity. Third was have the world's most open immigration policy to attract uh, the most energetic and talented immigrants from around the world where they would start 30 to 40% of new companies every year. Fourth was have the world's best rules for incentivizing risk-taking and preventing recklessness, the best institutions. And last, have the most government-funded research, pushing out the boundaries of science and technology, chemistry and biology, so our best engineers and entrepreneurs could pluck off the best ideas and turn them into new companies. That was our five-part formula for success. And it was begun by Hamilton and the Founding Fathers, and it was nurtured and enriched by every great president ever after. That's how we got here. So whenever I hear someone say, I was just one lonely guy. I was just one lonely guy out there. I did this all by myself. Keep the government out of my life. You did nothing by yourself. What made America great was a great public-private partnership where the public did its part and unleashed the private. One of my favorite and disturbing quotes in the book is from Bob Inglis. He's a Republican congressman from South Carolina who is one of two Republicans, Republicans who lost to Tea Party candidates in the last by-election. And he tells a wonderful story about being down in South Carolina at a town hall meeting there. 
Small town in South Carolina. Elderly man, elderly man gets up and waves his finger at him and says, Congressman, keep your government hands off my Medicare. <laughs> to me, that's like the quote of the decade. You know what I mean? Keep your government hands off my Medicare. <laughs> Talking about, okay. So, where is our five-part formula today? Education? Well, according to the PISA exams, we're down there about 25, 26 now. Our 16-year-olds in math, science, um, and reading comprehension. We're with Argentina and Slovenia, lovely countries, but not traditionally <laughs> considered our competitive peers. Infrastructure? I flew recently from Hong Kong to LAX. That's like flying from the Jetsons to the Flintstones, okay? Okay, I mean, it's like LAX is this wonderful sort of 1950s retro diner kind of feel, okay? Only it actually wasn't designed that way. It is 1950s. Immigration, did you follow the Republican debates? It was who could electrocute more Mexicans trying to get over the border, okay? I see you an electric fence, and I raised you an electric fence, okay? <laughs> Basically, our message to immigrants is come here, get educated, actually excel, dominate our math and physics courses, and then get the hell out of our country. <laughs> and please go home and start companies that will compete with ours. Rules and regulations? How'd you like that subprime crisis? Yes, you want an $800,000 mortgage and you can only show me $15,000 income and all the ID you have is your Delta SkyMiles card? No problem. You get a mortgage, all right? Government-funded research, have you seen that graph? It looks like an EKG heading for a heart attack. So if you actually think about what made us great and what is the state of that formula today, you understand why we wrote this book. So that's the first set of issues. They said de deficit we got to deal with, energy and climate. But let's spend the rest of the evening talking about the issue we're facing, the challenge we're facing, that you're also facing. You both as members of the European Union, but also um, you know, as, as, a, as a nation here. And it's how we deal with what we believe is the biggest thing happening on the planet today the merger of globalization and the IT revolution. <clears throat> to put it into my own language, what's happened over the last decade is that we've actually gone from flat world 1.0 to flat world 2.0. We've actually gone from a connected world to a hyper-connected world, but it's been disguised by the subprime crisis and by post 9-11, which have really kind of obscured what's been going on behind the scenes. Now, I know a lot about this because, say, I, I sat down to write a book about the world is flat. We're all connected in 2004. The book came out in 2005, The World is Flat. And so when I sat down with Michael to write this book, the first thing I did was I got, I got the first edition of The World is Flat off the bookshelf. I cracked it open to the index, looked under A, B, C, D, E, F, 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 A. Facebook wasn't in it. Yeah, when I was out there saying, the world is flat. We're all connected. Facebook didn't exist. Twitter was still a sound. The cloud was still in the sky. 4G was a parking place. LinkedIn was a prison. Applications were what you sent to college. And for most people, Skype was a typo. All, 
I love doing that. Can I do that again? Okay. <laughs> All of that happened after I said the world was flat. That's how much has changed in the last six years. We've gone from connected to hyper-connected. So when I, when I you know, wrote, wrote The World is Flat, I said we had, connected, we had connected Boston and Bangalore in India. Well, what's happened since is we've now connected Boston, Bangalore, and Sirisi. Where's Sirisi? That's a town 90 miles to the interior from Bangalore with 90,000 people in southern India, which thanks to these web-enabled cell phones, of which there are now over 750 million in use in India, their kids are on the grid with your kids and mine. When I wrote The World is Flat, I said we connected Detroit and Damascus. We've now connected Detroit, Damascus, and Dara. Where's Dara? Oh, Dara is the dusty Syrian border town on the Syrian-Jordanian border where the Syrian uprising began, which thanks to these flip cams and web-enabled video, we've been actually able to watch the Syrian revolution live and in color despite the fact that Syria has banned every international news organization from its territory, including Al Jazeera. Why? Because the Syrian opposition using the hyper-connected world, created their own virtual network called SNN, Sham News Network. Sham is Arabic for Syria, which you can find on YouTube where everyone dumps their video and pictures from the opposition. And thanks to that, we are able to watch an uprising live despite the fact Syria has banned every television. The dozen people here in the front row have in their wallets right now enough money to start Sham News Network. That's a hyper-connected world. Whenever I travel, I love to collect, connect little stories from the newspapers. You always find fun stuff. There's one. In October, uh, October 2010, I was in India, and the Hindustan Times that day ran a story, jumped out at me. Front page, it's a little item, though. It said that a Nepali telecommunications firm had just started providing 3G mobile network service at the summit of Mount Everest the world's tallest mountain. The story noted this would allow thousands of climbers and trekkers who throng the region every year access to high-speed internet and video calls using their mobile phones. <laughs> Do you realize how many phone calls are now being made from the top of Mount Everest that begin, Mom, you'll never guess where I'm calling you. <laughs> that is a hyper-connected world. Now, the hyper-connected world also shows up in a lot of other ways. Education, for instance, I'm from Minnesota, middle of America. My wife's from Iowa. Iowa is home to a wonderful small gem of a liberal arts college called Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa, central Iowa. Great little school. My mother-in-law went there, was chairman of the board, God bless her. Wonderful college, 1,600 students. Last year, 43% of all applications to Grinnell College, sorry, 9% of all applications to Grinnell College came from China. Of that 9%, 43% had perfect 800s on their math SATs. So when I was at Brandeis as an undergrad, we had a, I think we had a Chinese exchange. Su Zhao, I think was his name. He taught us all to eat with chopsticks. Okay, it was very cute, Zhao. Get that out of your head, all right? You want to go to Grinnell College now. I'm not talking about USC. I'm not talking about Stanford. I'm not talking about UC Santa Barbara. If you want to go to Grinnell College today, or last year, you would have been competing against 255 applications from China for a class of 400 people, 
43% of which had perfect 800s on their math SATs. Have a nice day. Okay? <laughs> so what's going on here? Okay? What is all of this telling us? What it's telling us is that as the world gets hyper-connected like this, it's as if the, the world were a single math class. What's happening is that the whole global curve is rising. Why is the global curve rising? Because your boss and mine now has access, cheaper, faster, more efficient access to more above average software, automation, robotics, labor, and genius than ever before in a hyper-connected world. So the whole global curve has risen. And hence, the single most important socioeconomic fact of our time of the hyper-connected world, is that average is officially over. Average is over. And that's actually what we've all been kind of feeling lately. You know that sense of stress that, that you're, you're feeling? It's because hyper-connectivity means that average is over. That old saying in Texas, if all you ever do is all you've ever done, all you ever get is all you ever got. That is, as they say, N-A, no longer applicable. If all you ever do is all you've ever done, all you'll ever get is not all you ever got. You will get below average. Woody Allen's dictum, 90% of life is just showing up, also N-A. If you just show up now, for your work, you will not, all right, get average. You will get below average. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking very easy for you to say, Mr. Smarty Pants, New York Times columnist, okay? No, no, let me tell you about my life. I inherited James Reston's office in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. What a great honor, okay? Got to meet him once. I mean, uh, it was ju- it's just, what a thrill. Now, Mr. Reston, for those who don't know, was a great editor and columnist of the Times in the 60s and 70s, 50s, late 50s and 70s, I believe. I suspect Mr. Reston used to come to the office every day back in the 60s and 70s and start every day by saying, I wonder what my seven competitors are going to write today. And he knew personally all seven. Walter Lippmann, Mary McGrory, Stuart Alsop, Tony Lewis. I do the same thing. I come to the office every morning and say, I wonder what my 70 million competitors <laughs> are going to write today. Okay? <laughs> 70 million competitors. I understand. If I, I was just in Turkey, I know my, whatever I write about Turkey may be compared on real clear politics to three other columns in English, you know, from the Turkish press, hundreds of different commentaries. When I was in Beirut in the summer of 82, it took six weeks for the New York Times to get to Beirut. I could write anything I wanted about Arafat. Maybe some Palestinian New York would call Beirut and say, did you see what Friedman wrote about you? On some scratchy line, who? Friedman, Friedman, no Friedman. Who does he work for? The New York Times, the New York Daily News. No, the New York. Get that out of your head. I was in India in October of this year, and I went down to Jodhpur. I did a story. Uh, I went down to IIT Jodhpur, the president of that university, great technology college, uh, someone I know, and he wanted me to come see what they had invented, IIT Jodhpur had won a competition in India, kind of raced to the top for who could invent an iPad that would sell for under $40. 
And um, it's a stripped-down model, has none of the beauty or full functionality of the Apple iPad, but as a teaching device with a $20 subsidy from the Indian government and a few hundred rupees every month, virtually every Indian student could afford one. That was the challenge they set. Designed and invented by two electrical engineering professors there, one of whom comes from a village in India with no electricity. Amazing story, you know. And by the way, this will be a feature of the hyperconnected world. You will see breaking of price points. You don't go from 400 to 450 thanks to the cloud, cheap tools, 10 cents a minute. You can store and, and, and basically use the most sophisticated computing power in the world. You're going to see price points break from 400 to $40, okay? You're going to see a lot of that. So I thought, this is great. I wrote a, my Sunday column about it. My Sunday column moves to the New York Times 8 p.m. Saturday night, Eastern Standard Time. Sometime between 8 p.m. Saturday night, Eastern Standard Time, and 8 a.m. New York Time, when readers there would have gotten up and read the column, someone in India went into the comments section under my column, just one press click, and posted a laboratory stress test of the device. Okay, full lab test that they, somebody in India had run, and fortunately it backed up my column, but maybe it wouldn't have. Before my readers had read it, someone in India had already posted a lab stress test of the device that I was writing about. If you don't think that keeps me on my toes, <laughs> thinking above average, okay? I mean, it's, that's the world we're in. We're all feeling that pressure now. So what does it all mean? Well, basically what it means for the workplace is this. Historically, the labor market has been divided into three tiers. The top tier, the one we all want to be in, want our kids in, was called non-routine work. You want your, your, yourself or your kids to be doing non-routine work, which involves critical thinking and problem solving. That means engineers and scientists and singers and dancers and athletes, professors, writers, um, lawyers, doctors, accountants, we all want to be doing non-routine work. Second tier is routine work. That was assembly line work or back room of a bank or an insurance company. Routine work has been crushed because anything that now can be described by an algorithm can easily be outsourced, automated, or digitized. And the third tier, not necessarily the bottom, is non-routine local work. That's your butcher, your baker, your candlestick maker, um, your nurse, your massage therapist, or your divorce lawyer, people who have to do a job in a specific location face-to-face, -face, okay, cannot be outsourced. Now, the wages of non-routine local workers will depend on the number of non-routine high-skilled workers you have. It's much better to be a massage therapist in Cupertino, California, next to Apple headquarters than it is in Gary, Indiana, okay? So the two are intertwined. Now, what's basically happening in the hyper-connected world is this. It is no longer enough to say, I'm non-routine. I'm non-routine, I'm safe. No, now it's about what extra you bring to that job. What is the unique value-added contribution you bring to that job? You have to be creative non-routine now. It's not enough to say, I'm a, I'm a radiologist, I'm non-routine, no, I can get my radiology done in Bangalore, as if it's next door. Not enough to say, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. No, you've got to be a creative lawyer now. Not enough to say, I'm a college professor, I teach physics. No, 
in a world where I can now import the physics professors of Stanford University to my local community college? You better be a creative physics professor. Not enough to say I'm an accountant. You got to be a creative accountant. Well, not a creative accountant, but you know what I mean, okay? okay. You got to bring something extra now, even to non-routine work. So how did I sort of get onto this? Because I do everything inductively. What we did for the book was we just went out and interviewed employers and asked them, what are you looking for now? And we did a whole chapter on this. It's called Help Wanted. And we interviewed four generic employers, uh, one high and white collar, the head of a Washington law firm, national law firm based in Washington, one low and white collar, the head of the outsourcing firm in India, actually where I started The World is Flat, a blue collar firm, DuPont, and the world's biggest green collar firm, the United States Army, the biggest employer in our country. And we asked all of them, who are you looking for? And what was amazing is they're all four looking for the same employee. Who is that? They're looking for employees who can do critical thinking and problem solving, dot, 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 in order to get an interview. Yeah, critical thinking and problem solving, that's table stakes now. What they're all actually looking for are people who can not only do their job, but invent, reinvent, and re-engineer their job while they are doing it. Because in a hyperconnected world, the pace of change is so quick, the big boss up there, he or she can't possibly be laying hands, seeing the opportunities where new products and services can be invented. You need people on the line, as Ellen Coleman, the head of DuPont, says, who are present all the time and seeing where the next product, service, opportunity can be created, invented, or reinvented. And that's why I tell my girls, girls, I'm a whole fuddy-duddy, I'm 58 years old. When I graduated from college, I got to find a job. You will have to invent a job. It may not be your first job. You may be lucky enough to get your first job, but to keep that job, you will have to invent, reinvent, and re-engineer that job. If you've ever heard Mark Pincus speak, the founder of Zynga, the game company, huge monster game company on Facebook, Zynga um, has a policy now where they actually review their team leaders quarterly, not annually, because in the game business, you may do five product cycles in a year, and they can't afford anymore to wait till the end of the year to discover that they have a bad team leader. Now, that's at the extreme edge of this, but directionally, it's where things are going. So I really got onto this by interviewing first that lawyer. He happens to be a family friend. His name is Jeff Lesk. He runs the Washington office of Nixon Peabody, a big national, very successful law firm. Uh, his wife is my wife's best friend. Uh, weeks after Lehman Brothers collapsed, we were having dinner. And I said to Jeff, what's happening with your law firm? Whew, business way off. I said, what are you doing? He said, we're laying off lawyers. I said, well, that's interesting. In a law firm, who gets laid off first? Is it last in, first out? He said, oh, it used to be, but not anymore. Now, you know, Tom, in that bubble, when we had all that bubble work, and we gave it to our lawyers, and they did it in a routine, non-routine way, and handed it back, a lot of them, they're gone. The ones we're keeping are those who said, Jeff, we could do that old work in a new way, or we could do new work in a new way. His interview in the book ends with him basically announcing that his firm just hired, his law firm just hired a chief innovation officer. How many law firms do you know have a chief innovation officer but that is where this is inevitably heading. 
Most interesting was the interview with the green collar guy. His name is Lieutenant General Martin Dempsey. Now, that's a name you may have heard because he's now chairman of our Joint Chiefs of Staff, the senior military officer in the United States. But we interviewed him because at the time, he was head of the U.S. Army Education Corps. We thought that would be really interesting. But what makes General Dempsey even more interesting is that in 2003, he commanded the 1st Armored Division that took Baghdad from Saddam Hussein. Five years later, five years later, in 2008, he became CENTCOM commander, commander of our overall Middle East force. And then he, then he went on to be head of the Army Education Corps. In his role as CENTCOM commander, he went to visit, he tells this story in the book, a far-flung base in Afghanistan, commanded by a U.S. Army captain out near the Hindu Kush. He spent two hours with that captain, he relates in the book, and came out of the meeting and realized that that captain, in the outer reaches of Afghanistan, had access in a hyper-connected world to more intelligence at the tactical and national level and could order up more firepower than he, Martin Dempsey, could when he commanded the troops that took Baghdad just five years earlier in 2003. So he realized when he came back to take over U.S. Army education that he had completely revamped the education corps. He discussed what he did in the book. But one of the things he did was give new recruits iPhones when they show up. Within three weeks, you may be told to download the lesson. You'll teach the course that day. The drill instructor will sit in the front row. Because how we now train that captain, how we promote that captain, how we select that captain has to fundamentally change in this hyper-connected world. So that's basically what's going on um, in the labor market. So what does that mean for education? What it means is we have two educational challenges today. We need to bring our bottom to our average so much faster. Because in a world where average is over, it means if, if you're down there now, if you do not complete high school with enough skills to enter college without significant remediation, there's, there's nothing down there for you anymore. There is no job that will produce an average lifestyle. And at the same time, we need to bring our average up to the global heights, okay, by helping everyone nurture, find, define, and redefine their extra, that unique value contribution they will bring to whatever job they do. The first is a challenge of the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, and maybe a fourth R, rigor. The second is a challenge of the three C's, creativity, collaboration, and communication, the very uh, tools we need for people to find and develop their extra. So we have two, and you have, two educational challenges at the same time. That's really what's going on out there. So I want to save some time for questions, so let me just wrap up here by answering a question that I get a lot from parents. What do you tell your kids? How, do you, how, how should they lean into this world? And what I, what I tell everyone is, and we have a whole, it's all in the book, I think there are kind of four mindsets that are really useful for thinking about thriving and surviving in this world. Think like an immigrant. Think like an artisan. Think like a starter-upper. And think like a waitress at Perkins Pancake House in Minneapolis, my favorite restaurant. <laughs> Let me explain. Think like an immigrant. How does the new immigrant think? How does the new immigrant think? New immigrant thinks, I just showed up here in London, and there is no legacy spot waiting for me 
at the LSE. I better figure out what's going on here, see where the best opportunities are and pursue them with more energy and vigor than anybody else. Immigrants are paranoid optimists. They are optimists because they picked up from somewhere to go somewhere they thought was better. And they are paranoid because they know it can be taken away from them in a second. Think like an immigrant, friends, because we are all new immigrants to the hyper-connected world. Second, think like an artisan. This is an idea from Larry Katz at Harvard. Who was the artisan? The artisan was that man or woman in the Middle Ages who made every item individually, one-off. They made every pair of shoes, every piece of jewelry, every saddle, every piece of furniture, every kitchen utensil, every piece of clothing individually before mass manufacturing. And what did the best artisans do? They took such pride in their work, they brought so much extra that they carved their initials into their work. Do your job every day as if you took so much pride in it, you'd want to carve your initials into it at the end of the day. Think like an artisan, take pride. Third, think like a starter-upper. This is an idea I got from Reed Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, big investor in Facebook. Reed always says, in Silicon Valley, there's only one four-letter word, and it isn't the one you think, and it isn't even four letters, but it does start with F. And it is finished. If you ever think you're finished in Silicon Valley, you are finished. All right? <laughs> and Reed's motto is, always be in beta. What is beta? Beta is that stage in the development of any piece of software where you got it about four-fifths done. It's not, it's not perfect. You got about four-fifths done, and you throw it over the wall, and the sort of crowd you know, deals with it, finds the finds the mistakes, finds the errors, throws it back. You work on it some more, throw it back over the wall. Always be in beta. Always be thinking how you can redesign, re-engineer, redefine whatever it is you do. And it's a really helpful mindset. Never, ever identify yourself as finished. Always be in beta. And lastly, think like that waitress at Perkins Pancake House in Minneapolis, just off France Avenue and Highway 100. I was home in my hometown working on the book, had breakfast at Perkins with my best friend, Ken Greer, Sunday morning, 7 a.m. Waitress came by to take our orders. I ordered three buttermilk pancakes and scrambled eggs. Ken ordered three buttermilk pancakes and fruit. And after 15 minutes, the waitress came. She put down her two plates, and all she said to Ken was, I gave you extra fruit. She got a 50% tip. <laughs> Why? Because that waitress didn't control much, but she controlled the fruit ladle. <laughs> and that was her extra. What was that waitress doing in her own little way? She was thinking entrepreneurially. She was thinking entrepreneurially. Whatever you do, think entrepreneurially. Think about how you can bring some extra to sell it deeper, farther, and wider. So in this hyper-connected world, think like an immigrant, stay hungry. Think like an artisan, take pride. 
Think like a starter operator. Always be in beta. And think like a waitress at Perkins Pancake House. And always think entrepreneurially. Because, friends, we all now truly live in Garrison Keeler's Lake Wobegon. <laughs> where all the men are strong, all the women are beautiful, and all the children need to be above average. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So that's just a little aperitif, basically, from the book. It's about a lot more and uh, ranges over a lot more subjects. We have, certainly have time for 20 minutes or so of questions. And, uh, up there, yeah. May I please ask you two questions? Thank please. you so much for an excellent lecture. Thanks. Appreciate it. My first question involves an unprecedented thing in America, namely that most babies are now born to non-white mothers mm -hmm. and the entire racial balance of the United States has changed. Mm -hmm. My question is, what does that say for the self-perception of rescuing America? And my second question is, this concerns a, a continuity rather than a discontinuity. The Jewish community in America mm -hmm. have always supported the Democratic mm -hmm. Party. Mm -hmm. My question is, why is that, and will this influential group continue to vote that way? Um, interesting question, thank you. Next question, please. Um, uh, <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, on, on the first issue, I, I don't really know enough about that. I'm just going to leave that one. Um, and uh, on the second issue, um, you know, latest polling shows uh, Jewish voters uh, about 65% in favor of Obama. Probably the high watermark for uh, Democrats has been 75%, say, for Bill Clinton. Um, so, you know, Obama's lost a little bit of uh, Jewish support because of issues between him and, and uh, Bibi Netanyahu. Um, but I don't see that changing. I think that... Uh, the kind of uh, um, uh, liberal, sort of socially conscious uh, ethic uh, that has traditionally run through the American Jewish community, I think is still there. Um, I don't think it's, it's, it's uh, I don't see it going away. Um, you have certain people, you know, voting, you know, uh, conservative for either pro-Israel reasons or tax reasons or whatever, just like um, every other American. But I, I think that core support of the Jewish community for uh, Democratic voters it's still going to stay around that 65 70% as far as I can see. Thank you very much. Um, down here. Yeah, please. Thank you, sir, for keeping us uh, on the edge. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, my question is that uh, is there a collaborative way that America can engage with, with, let's say, China or India or other parts of the world to reinvent itself? To reinvent itself. That Can we all kind of reinvent ourselves? You mean together or... Can it use the firepower, the brain power right, of the United States, uh, of these countries, right. oh, to okay. reinvent we, uh, itself? Yeah. Well, I, I think that's really going on. You know, I mean, if you really, um, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in India, in particular, and um, you know, just on my last trip there, you know, you, you'll find so many young Indian startups now, and I profile one in the book in particular, where you know the CEOs from Boston, the CFOs from Italy. Um, uh, you know, the engineers and designers um, and, and the conceptualizers are from India. They're leveraging the cloud. Um, I, I see this happening, this kind of collaboration, it may not be happening on the national level, it may not be the United States and India, but on the micro level, I'm just always amazed. The minute you look inside 
a startup in India today, the incredibly international and global nature of it, both in the tools they're using and the people they're employing. And we profile one in the book. Thank you. Yeah, I'll go around. Um, so I've been here for 24 years mm -hmm. from L.A. Uh -huh. to USC. <laughs> LAX pretty well. Gotcha. <laughs> Yes. when I go back, yeah. is the insularity and mm -hmm. the degree to which my countrymen really don't know the rest of the world geographically, sure. yeah. culturally. There's not even a feigned interest in it. So I do wonder whether, on your point about education, what is it going to actually take to wake people up to the fact that there sure. is life outside the United States? Yeah, um, you know, it's a perfectly good question. I shouldn't talk, you know, I, I, I uh, ran my column today is from Turkey, and I was referring to Turkey um, uh, and its relation to, to Europe, and I said, you know, as Turkey looks um, east to Europe, and, um, uh, you know, so I got to be very careful. Um, I uh, corrected that as soon as I could on the web, but I'm afraid it will live forever in the print edition of the New York Times. And what happened was I... I actually, it's an Istanbul Dateline column, but I actually finished it in London. And so, uh, it's something in my head, you know, Europe was over there. Uh, all right, so, um, just keep that between us. So, um, I shouldn't talk. Um, you know, we've always um, been the, the, this mix of both things. Incredible insularity, and yet uh, there are five American companies today, Microsoft, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter that are just killing it, okay? And they're the five probably most dynamic companies in the world today. So we've always been both, and, um, and we've always had both. And I don't think that's gonna change. You know, um, when you are the biggest, you know, basically island country in the world, protected by two oceans, you know, from uh, even in a hyper-connected world, uh, I think that insularity is always gonna be there. Um, you know, it's really, I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, the number of people making their living today in America as kind of foreign affairs columnists, myself, my great colleague who's here, Roger Cohen, writes for the International Herald Tribune, um, Fareed Zakaria at Newsweek, um, uh, David Ignatius at the Washington Post. It's like, it's under 10, you know, easily. I'm not sure we can make eight, you know. And that's sort of scary to me. I mean, that is people who spend all their time sort of just focused on that. So not that other people aren't writing about it all the time. So um, it's something that concerns me, but in this kind of hyper-connected world, you know, young people today, they're in contact. They are, they are really globalizing themselves. So I just think this is a feature of America. You're going to get both extremes. You know, we're still that country that is going to produce both extremes, and I don't think anything's going to change that real soon. So thank you. Up there, yeah, please. Um, all the five projects you mentioned, R&D, um, infrastructure, education, education these are all things that really cannot be built by individuals or exactly. capitalist society. They have to be built by government. Uh, we've lived here for 12 years. Mm -hmm. and in that 12 years, the uh, um, partisan divide right. in our government has become depressingly extreme. In, America, in America's government. In America, yeah. 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 And, um, and the dialogue has reached the point of stupidity just to win a political point. Yeah. Um, and 
where, you know, where is this going to end up if we cannot get the leadership, and we need leadership to change these things, where, where they're still talking about idiotic issues that simply don't matter. Right. When is this going to change? Yeah. Um, and it's a, you know, this is really what a lot of our second half of the book is about, which is really about the politics of this moment, and, and um, uh, so that we, we, we share a lot of your view, you know, that, I mean, our chapter six is called Whatever Your Forum Against It, um, which is a line from a Groucho Marx movie. And um, uh, there's a lot of reasons for this breakdown. Uh, one is money and politics, uh, which is now as big as all outdoors, basically. Our Congress is a, is a forum for legalized bribery, is really what it is. Um, uh, the media, you know, we now have liberal TV and conservative TV, and you can narrowcast and go to whatever website you like and have all your biases about the world reconfirmed. Um, you know, uh, the two parties, thanks to gerrymandering of political districts down to the atomic level with Google Maps, um, now are just so much more pure uh, conservative or, or liberal. Um, the days of liberal northern Republicans... See, in the old days when you and I grew up, there were, the Republican Party had liberal northern Republicans and conservative um, from the rest of the country. Uh, Democrats had conservative Democrats, uh, blue dog Democrats from the South, and, and then you know, um, uh, liberals from the rest of the country. What's happened to both parties is that the northern Republicans have been purged. Olympia Snow, just one of the last few, just resigned from Maine. And the um, uh, conservative Democrats have been purged. So the two parties are now much more uniform. And so what can change that? Well, we, you know, we argue in a chapter in the book for shock therapy um, because we think that the system is going to get a shock. It's either going to come from the market, a mother nature, or the middle. And we're hoping for a shock from the middle, and that's why we've been advocating, I've been advocating, um, and getting holy hell for it from both sides, uh, a third party because uh, we think the system needs a shock. And that... Um, and by we've had this before in our past. You know, I mean, uh, we had it with Teddy Roosevelt uh, in 1912. We had it with George Wallace uh, in 65, I believe. And um, we had it with Ross Perot in 1992. Now, a third party doesn't have to win to affect all three of them, you know, had huge impact on the next administration without being in it. Um, Roosevelt really helped define Wilson's progressivism. George Wallace had a huge impact on a negative way, I would argue, on law and order and other issues under Nixon. And, of course, Ross Perot. Ross Perot, remember, had 40% of the vote at one time. He won 20%, basically. And he was nuts, okay? <laughs> so, um, so imagine, imagine today if Michael Bloomberg ran for president, okay? I tell you, he'd have 30 40% coming out of the block. Um, and so... What would that do? It would force the other two parties to go from looking like that to looking like that. Because if someone, I'm a big believer, you know, life is about incentives. Get the incentives right. You know, move the cheese, the mouse moves. Don't move the cheese, the mouse doesn't move. So if somebody comes along and, and, and identifies a huge pile of cheese in the center left, center right, believe me, these guys will go for it. But right now there's no one doing that. And it's because... I mean, you know, we have a real three reinforcing problems. I mean, the lack of leadership today, I would argue, is a product of, of uh, it, it's, it's technological, it's situational, um, and it's generational. Okay? Uh, it's generational in the sense we've gone from a greatest generation uh, that um, grew up in the Cold War. Cold War was a serious time. It made people serious. 
And that generation believed in save and invest. They believed in sustainable values, values that sustain. We've gone from that generation to my generation, a baby boomer generation. We did a lot of good things, but we did believe in situational values. Do whatever the situation allows. So we've had a generational shift. That same time, we have a the situation. The problem is situational in the sense that we're now in a credit crisis. As all the great economists are telling us, now credit crisis takes seven to ten years to get out of because they require deleveraging. And so the best leader in the world right now would basically break his axe on trying to turn this around overnight. And lastly, it's, it's technological. I think this sense of lack of leadership. I, I, I'm thinking of writing this for this weekend. In fact, I was thinking about it the other day. You know, in 1965, Gordon Moore, the co-founder of Intel, coined what came to be known as Moore's Law. And Moore's Law stated that the speed of microchips will double every 18 to 24 months. And it's pretty well held up. Well, I'd like to coin a new law. And the new law says that the quality of leaders uh, declines by one degree for every 100 million new users of Facebook and Twitter. Okay? <laughs> That's my law. Because when, when so many people are, uh, when you get into these two-way conversations to the degree that we are now, where it isn't just sort of top-down, but it's bottom-up. And that has a lot of good uses to it, too. It's, you, but in politics, it's, it's gone to an extreme, where um, it, you got all these politicians running around tweeting, what is the trend on Twitter? Did they like that on Twitter? How many people posted it on Facebook? You know, and it's so noisy out there, you lose focus, you lose any sense of what you're supposed to be doing, you know, as a leader, and you end up with um, what I think is the ideology of the day, which is popularism. Popularism is actually the universal idea, do what is popular, you know, and now you know so instantaneously what is popular, because what are they saying about me on Twitter? I personally think Twitter is a sign of the apocalypse, okay, <laughs> um, uh, and um, so I, I just think, you know, all these people sending 142-character messages around the world, you know, um, I don't, personally don't get it, you know. And so, um, so all these three are combining now. And it's what it's doing is it's, it's sort of shrinking everybody. And nobody can kind of get any, any altitude above it. And I think that's really kind of where we are right now. Thank you. Yeah, I'll go over here. I'm ready. I'll go, let me go over here because I've been over here and I haven't looked over here. Thank you. You, please. Um, and I was just wondering, what is the source of your optimism? Because I'm getting very, <laughs> very <laughs> pessimistic after this talk. Thank you. So I get asked that a lot. You said you're, you know, I mean, uh, frustrated optimist. We get the frustration now from where comes the optimism. And I'm, I'm going to be really honest. D drugs. I use a lot of drugs. Okay. <laughs> No, don't tweet that. That's a joke, okay? All right. So um, uh, it's a very good question, and it's actually the penultimate or third to last chapter in the book. And third to last chapter in the book is called They Just Didn't Get the Word. Because our country, my country, America, today, blessedly so, is still just full of people who didn't get the word. They didn't get the word that Germany is going to eat our breakfast. They didn't get the word that China is going to eat our lunch. And they just go out and invent stuff and start stuff and collaborate on stuff and fix stuff. If you want to be an optimist about America, stand on your head. The country looks so much better 
from the bottom up than the top down. And I learned this from my previous book, which was Hot, Flat, and Crowded, about energy and environment. Because I got to go all over, the Amer- all over America two years ago and talk to people about energy and environment. And it was amazing. I mean, everywhere I spoke, people would come up to me afterwards and say, Mr. Friedman, I've got, I've got an invention, an energy, I've got a duck, it paddles a wheel, blows up a balloon, issues methane, turns a turbine. I heard the craziest stuff, okay? But what it told me was that the country is alive from the bottom up. I mean, I would go back to my room, I'd do book signings, I would empty my pocket of business cards from energy entrepreneurs, you know. And rock stars get room keys, I get business cards, but they're very exciting in their own way, okay? Because what they tell you is the country is alive. One of my favorite quotes in this book is from a Marine colonel. We asked him, why did you guys surge in Iraq? He said, Tom, we were too dumb to quit. And thank God, our country is still full of people too dumb to quit. And you meet them anytime you get out of Washington, D.C. <laughs> and that's, you know, and that's why, and because it helps to be from Minnesota, really, um, and have your wife from Iowa. Because you, when you do get out, you do see what's going on. And that's why the picture we draw of America at the end of the book is a picture of the space shuttle taking off. You see in the space shuttle all that incredible thrust coming from below. That's all those people down there. But in our case, the booster rocket, Washington, D.C., and the five-part formula for success is cracked now and leaking energy. And the pilots in the cockpit are fighting over the flight plan. So the country right now cannot get escape velocity, the escape velocity it needs to get into the next orbit, the next great industrial revolution. But, you know, we'll fix it. We will. But that's the reason, you know, this book has a backward-looking title but a forward-looking theme. And it's because, you know, we, we have so much we can learn from everybody, from Great Britain, from China, from India, from Brazil. But at the end of the day, the, the history books we need to read are our own. We did this before. The, the country we need to rediscover is actually America. That used to be us. And it, it, can, it, 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 it can be again. Thank you very much. I'm going to be outside. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared debates, talks and discussions free on iTunes. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.